Well, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. I need to make a real quick disclaimer as uh, we get ready to look into God's Word together. Uh, I've been, I was sick last week and uh, am getting over the remnants of that. So you'll notice my voice is a little bit uh, less than what I'm used to. And uh, I may occasionally cough and apologize for that. All right. Uh, But we'll work together here through this next section in Philippians chapter one this morning. So take your Bibles and find your way to Philippians chapter one. If you're a guest, I want to welcome you. We are glad that you are with us this morning. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. And we have been working our way through Paul's letter to the Christians in Philippi. And the next section that we're looking at together is verses 12 through 18. Uh, This style of going through scripture together is what is called expository preaching. It's when we try to have the main meaning of the sermon reflect the main meaning of a passage. And really our aim and our hope as pastors as we preach this way here is that the more and more we understand and hear God's word preached this way, the better equipped we are as his people to know and understand God's word for ourselves. As we begin this morning, I wonder how you would answer this question. What matters most in life to you? What matters most in life to you? Let's remember that this book is a personal letter from Paul the Apostle to Christians, real Christians, that lived in the Roman colony of Philippi. These Christians had, uh, had uh, great hearts of affection for Paul. Paul was the one that God used to start the church in Philippi. And it was done through much hardship, persecution, risk, endangerment to his own life. They, these Christians had sent Paul some financial support and help. We know that was sent to them, uh, sent to Paul by a man named Epaphroditus. Uh, you can read that in chapter 4, verse 18 of this letter. And it seems that Paul is now writing this letter as kind of a thank you note back to those Christians for their kindness to him, for their support. And uh, he delivers that thank you to them through Epaphroditus, sending Epaphroditus back, chapter 2, verse 25 of this book. And I'm sure these Christians were, were eager to hear a report from Paul on how he's doing. Uh, they have a heart of affection for him. They are supporting him and wanting to see uh, his ministry continue. Even though he's in prison, they want to continue to help him. And so Paul gives them a bit of an unexpected update. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 12 of Philippians 1. I'll read aloud. I'd encourage you to follow along silently. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, But others from goodwill, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for letting us have this time together as your people to look into it. We pray that you would 
Open our eyes to see wondrous truth from your word, that your truth would not just inform our minds, but it would change our hearts. You would warm our affections for you, that you would give us faith and repentance where we need it. You give us joy-filled obedience for this week and and the life that you have yet for us. Lord, shape us, change us, mature us, and equip us as your people that we might more effectively live out our mission together as your church. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Remember just a few minutes ago I asked, how would you respond to the question, what matters most in life? What matters most in life? Well, Paul answers that question in this section of this book. And Paul essentially answers that question in two ways, saying the same thing just in two different ways. In verses 12 through 14, we learn that the advance of the gospel matters most. And then in verses 15 through 18, we learn that proclaiming Christ matters most. And those really are saying the same thing. Advancing the gospel is the same thing as how do you advance the gospel? You proclaim Christ. You proclaim uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as Savior. So bottom line for Paul, what matters most in life is the proclamation of the good news that is only found in Jesus. That's what matters most to Paul. I wonder how we compare. What matters most to us? Take a look in verse 12. Paul wants to set the record straight. He wants his readers to be certain, to understand that, quote, what has happened to him has really served to advance the gospel. Well, the question then, as we have as readers, is what has happened to Paul? Well, the answer, I think it's safe to say that the answer to that question is found by reading through Acts chapter 21 through 28. Now, we're not going to do that this morning. But what I will do is just give a brief overview of some snapshots of what has happened to him, what the report that these Christians in Philippi would have heard had happened to Paul over, uh, over some time. He was threatened by assassins. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was the focus of a riot. And yet through all of this, we learn that Paul had opportunity to proclaim Christ as risen Lord and Savior to some of the upper elites of Roman high political society. And I mention that because he says in verse 12 here, or in verse 13, the, the gospel's advance, verse 13, so that, with this result, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Well, this praetorian guard and to all the rest, what does that mean? Well, I think to all the rest could be referring to some of these types of anecdotes. In Acts chapter 24, we learn that Paul had a chance to share the gospel of Christ with the governor, Felix, and Felix's wife, Drusilla. It says this, and by the way, they had numerous conversations. It says this, Luke records it. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul, who's in prison, and he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. So here Paul's in prison, being summoned regularly by the governor, talking about faith in Christ and the coming judgment of Christ and the life that is found in Christ. And, of course, Felix wasn't all noble here. He didn't have really an open mind, it seems. He was really looking to hopefully get some money from this, um, from this uh, prisoner. And we learn that Felix left Paul in prison for no real crime but to get a bribe. But, man, what a tough circumstance for Paul, right? To be in prison and almost to kind of, kind of be summoned 
for the uh, interest and entertainment, so to speak, of the governor, but yet he continues to proclaim Christ. Well, time drags on for Paul. We're told that a new governor assumes power. In chapter 24, 27, it says, when two years had elapsed. That's a long time when you're in prison. Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So rather than release him, he leaves him in prison, and now Paul is Festus' problem. So he listens to Paul, and he asks him if he would rather face trial in Jerusalem. Paul says no. He appeals to Caesar. And sometime later, Festus is visited by King Agrippa, who was appointed by the Roman emperor to be king of, king of the Jews, ruler of that, of that Jewish area. And King Agrippa and his wife Bernice visit Festus. And Festus lays out Paul's case, okay? He says, hey, I've got this guy in prison. Here's the circumstances. He lays it out to King Agrippa, and King Agrippa says to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, Festus, you will hear him. So Paul then in Acts 25, it says, On the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. All these people are in witness, okay? And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And we're told in chapter 26, verse 1, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And Paul goes on to give a defense of the resurrection of Christ and an account of his own conversion of faith in Jesus as God sent one, the Christ, in whom the the salvation of the world is found. And in Acts 26, it says, "And, And as Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? When Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Now, I shared all of this context to give us a better understanding of what Paul means when he he writes to these Christians a report of how he's doing. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known, verse 13, throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, and all the rest, right? Felix and Festus and their wives and King Agrippa and his wife, and all those that were involved with the pomp and circumstance of having royal dignitaries present for a visit like that, all the rest, what? Here, know that my imprisonment is for the Messiah. So contrary to what he knows his readers would expect, Paul's in prison. His ministry opportunities have been diminished. They've been erased, have been removed. His ability to be a church planner is gone. Well, actually, God has turned those things around and have been for the advance of the gospel. Well, what does it mean for the advance of the gospel? Well, I think the answer to that is found by the definition of verses 13 and 14 of our text. I think it means that more and more people hear the good news of Jesus, and more and more people share boldly the good news of Jesus. Look at verse 13. He says, The whole imperial guard and others have heard and know that he is in prison for Christ. The imperial guard were the elite Roman guard for the emperor, kind of like the secret service of our day, but not entirely analogous, okay? But 
kind of similar. They were the elite Roman guard in number between 5,000 to 10,000 men through through history, it kind of swelled and changed numbers uh, depending on, upon who was emperor. They were the personal bodyguard for the Roman emperor. They were an elite, well-paid force, and they enjoyed the privileges that went along with that. They knew Paul was not a Roman criminal like ordinary Roman criminals. He, has, he was guilty of really no Roman crime, no Roman, no Roman offense. He was in prison as kind of a political prisoner of interest. He was a prisoner for the Messiah, for Christ. And word began to spread. And of course, as Paul had chance to share the good news of Christ in these public opportunities with Felix, to Festus, with King Agrippa, with their wives, and all those who were in audience heard that, word continues to spread and word continues to spread. There was a curious result of what happened to this in verse 14. Because of Paul's courageous proclamation of Christ while in prison, other Christians became more confident in the Lord to boldly speak the gospel of Jesus without fear. And I think this is remarkable. Because the man who was in chains proclaimed the gospel with boldness, those who were unchained found greater boldness to share the gospel of Jesus. And that's really peculiar to me. You would think that if you know, Paul in prison, their Christian community would think, man, we've got to kind of dial it back. They put Paul in prison. We'll slow down, right? Let's cancel that mailer. Let's, let's not... Let's not go tell more people about the gospel anymore. But the opposite happened. Because a man who was in chains proclaimed the gospel of boldness, those who were unchained found greater boldness to share the gospel of Jesus. Isn't that curious? By the way, that is the curious way that God spreads the gospel. The very things that we would think would hinder and diminish the gospel from being spread are the very things that God uses to unleash the gospel to go further. Now, this is contrary to how we would understand it. So what does this matter and what can we learn from this in our modern context, right? Um, We don't have a Paul who's in prison. We are not living in Philippi. How does this work for us in modern-day America? Well, I think there's a couple of ways that this can be applied. One of those ways is this. We can be assured that our circumstances lie in God's hands. And he will use our circumstances to advance the gospel. And this is true especially when it seems like the opposite would be expected. So when it seems like in your circumstance that the opposite of the advance of the gospel would be the result, we can be assured that our circumstances lie in God's hands. Paul was not a prisoner in Rome by chance, by bad luck, by poor choice. Paul was a prisoner of Rome in Rome because of God's will for him to be there and to serve him in that way. A difficult circumstance, yes. A dreadful one, yes. But nonetheless, this is the challenge that we face. We find it difficult to accept this truth in our own lives. Are we willing to place our own circumstances under the authority of God? in the advance of his gospel? Are we willing to trust God to do this? And maybe this is the better question. Do we even value what God is doing? Because so often we want our circumstances different for our own reasons. It has nothing to do with gospel advancement. It has nothing to do with God or his kingdom. It's our kingdom that matters. And yet what we see here is an astonishing display in Paul's life 
of the centrality of God's kingdom and the advance of God's gospel. Do you believe that God is sovereign over all things in your life? That's a difficult question to answer. It's easy enough to say, sure. It's another thing to really soak into that answer and really admit and submit because our lives can include some horrors, can't they? Hard things. Do you believe that through your circumstances, not just in spite of, but even through those difficult circumstances, God is able and is accomplishing His good purposes? I know I've just raised up the big question, right, of the problem of evil in our world, right? And how do we reconcile a good and gracious God with the horrors of evil that happen in our world? And I'm not here to silence all those questions and all those conundrums, but I am here to remind us that is demonstrated in the life of Paul from Philippians that our circumstances do indeed lie under God's control. They do. And we can trust and be assured that they are being worked out for some amazing ways that God has to accomplish His purposes and plans. But another convicting truth for us to consider, and the main idea from this passage really is this, the advance of the gospel matters most. The advance of the gospel matters most. Now that's tough for us to really embrace, especially in our modern secular context. Now sure, as Christians, we might like to, you know, say true on the multiple choice test, right? Or the true and false test as Christians. What matters most in life? The gospel. Sure, true. Yeah. But I mentioned the difficulty of our secular context because our, the world we live in seems to disregard and diminish the transcendent. Here's what I mean by that. We live in a world that puts down the spiritual and denigrates it, laughs at it, diminishes it, scoffs at it, and elevates in place of that the physical. This means that in our modern technological society, it prides itself in the currency of objective so-called scientific fact. Physical measures of success, such as wealth or beauty, are the metrics used by our society. Our culture attaches meaning, and it seeks to find ultimate purpose and fulfillment in the here and now. That's the world we live in. And those forces are pressing upon us as Christians more than we care to admit. If that describes how you think about life, if that's how you try to organize your joy, how you try to find fulfillment in life, your purpose and meaning in life will regularly be threatened. But God has a better way for his people, and Paul demonstrates that in this text. Our world perceives suffering as an interruption to life, but Christians, by God's word, understand suffering as part of life that God sovereignly and wisely uses to advance the gospel. Put yourself in Paul's shoes. Imagine when at the peak of your influence and effectiveness, you are forcibly removed from doing what you know and love. That happened to Paul. He was a missionary, a church planner. No more. He's in prison. Imagine if you were kept in prison for years under false accusations. What if some Christians asked you, how are you doing? What would you say? What did Paul say? Well, according to Philippians 1, here's what Paul says. When Paul was asked, how are you doing? He responds with this. Here's how the gospel's doing. Here's how the gospel's doing. How he's doing doesn't matter as much. Because what he's understanding is that his life is really fulfilling its purpose in seeing God's 
mission accomplished in the world of the gospel of Jesus being spread through the world so more and more people could know of God's love for them through Christ. The advance of the gospel is what matters most. So the question for us is, how much does the advance of the gospel matter to us as a church family? Or maybe we should say it this way, how much does it matter to you as a church member? As difficult as this is for us to hear, God often uses the weakness and suffering of his people to advance the gospel. That's the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. And it's the way God describes his work throughout all of scriptures. God uses the foolish and weak things of this world to show his saving power. Here's two examples of that. In 1 Corinthians 1, the apostle says, For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So there's two different people that look at the same thing, and some people say that's foolishness, other people say that's God's power. Well, who's right? Or 1 Corinthians 1.27, But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. By the way, this is not what we're celebrating in Advent. We are celebrating the birth of a baby, the king as a baby, who was not, right? The king of kings has come, how? Not with pomp and circumstance, but as a baby in a manger, in a stable, not in the capital city, but in Bethlehem, not born to a family of wealth and influence, but to nobodies, a so-called, by the way, some nobodies that were embroiled in a so-called scandal of an illegitimate son of a carpenter. And yet God uses those very things. And you can pull that thread on through, right? I mean, God uses the worst evil imaginable in the world, the death of his son, to accomplish the greatest good. That's the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. So what this might mean for us in our modern-day context? Well, it might mean this. It can mean that beautifully appointed buildings and large parking lots and impressive programs designed to attract demanding church shoppers do not guarantee God is at work. And that's the pivotal word there, guarantee. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with parking lots and buildings and programs. But our modern day, uh, our modern day sensibilities are too often attuned to those types of things as the way we measure God's work. But God is at work in upside-down ways, in weak, insignificant things that our world would call foolish. Sometimes, oftentimes, God works through the means that the world rejects. So let's focus our application a bit more. Maybe God needs to convict us about things or people or pursuits that matter more to us than the advance of the gospel. For instance, are you saying no to the gospel because you are saying yes to something else? These can be good things. Things like career that God gave you, comforts, family, kids' sports or extracurricular activities, personal hobbies, leisure activities, travel vacation plans. None of those in and of themselves are wrong. But when we are giving way to careerism or familyism, when we have elevated something good to something ultimate over and above God and his gospel, then we are in error. And this is an error very easy for us in our modern day context to slip into. Paul demonstrates the priority of the gospel in a second way in verses 15 through 18. 
really the same idea. The gospel matters most. But he says it this way in verses 15 through 18, proclaiming Christ matters most. In verse 14, take a look at that verse. He just gives them a report about how most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Which, by the way, I was going to do this. I'm not for sake of time um, in my, my voice, but if you could look at the last chapter of Romans 16, of, of Romans, I think it's Romans 16, and that is a chapter full of people's names. And I think that might be a great snapshot when he talks about, and most of the others, right, have become bold. Um, what a wonderful, you should just do that sometime. Just read through the list of names in Acts 16. And a lot of them are just ordinary, like names of slaves and servants that are in there. Um, uh, it's just a wonderful mix of who I think some of these real people are. These were real people, real stories, real families. They worked real jobs. And how they have been emboldened to share the gospel. He says, well, isn't that a good thing? Right? Well, it's a little bit complicated. And he elaborates on that complexity in verses 15 through 18. Some proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry. Verse 15. Which, by the way, rival and envy and rivalry are often put together in the scriptures. And in Galatians 5, they are works of the flesh. Others are proclaiming Christ from goodwill. Some, though, verse 16, are doing it out of love for Paul because of what they know about him. They know he loves the advance of the gospel. He's given his life to that. And they want to continue that ministry and mission, even in his absence. Others, though, preach Christ out of selfish ambition, out of a sense of hypocrisy because of what they suppose about Paul. And they suppose about Paul that they are going to further afflict Paul by their actions of spreading the gospel, kind of sticking it to him. But do they? Are they successful in their efforts? Well, look at what Paul says in verse 18. What then? Another way to say that is, so what? Because the advance of the gospel matters most to Paul, he can say that regardless of their intent or the motive, he is glad, he rejoices that Christ is proclaimed. This is amazing. This is amazing. This is so countercultural, especially in our present moment. I mean, think of this. Paul knows that there are people actively engaged in ministry efforts purely for this purpose, to stick it to him, to aggravate him, to afflict him, to irritate him. I mean, he's in prison, which is infliction, and they want to add to his misery by being engaged in these efforts. Maybe they're jealous of his ministry, maybe they were jealous of his influence over his God-appointed apostleship. I don't know. We're speculating here, right? For whatever the reasons are, they proclaimed the gospel with insincere motives. They did not really want the fame of Christ to spread. They weren't really interested in seeing the gospel of God expand through seeing sinners repent and believe. They were engaged in these efforts for the sake of sticking it to Paul who's in prison. Insincere motives. Right? How awful for Paul, right? How awful for him. What's his response? Well, for Paul, he considers this. It's a true gospel that's being preached. Christ is being proclaimed. So what does he do? He rejoices. He rejoices. Friends, 
This is so countercultural. Whether someone proclaims the message with false motives, pretense, or whether with true motives, in truth, Paul rejoices. Again, this is, makes us squirm, right? I mean, do we believe so deeply and do our hearts burn with a fire for the advance of the gospel so much that we are willing to suffer the mistreatment and duplicitous motives of others against us personally and to respond with this? Rejoice. Rejoice. I mean, I mean, really, where's Paul's outrage? I mean, do you know what they've done to him? Do you know what they're pursuing? Do you know why they said to him? Do you know why they're doing this? Where's his outrage? It's not. He rejoices. Friends, this is astonishing. This is astonishing. Are we willing to let personally aimed malicious words and actions of wrongly motivated Christians slide off our backs as inconsequential because what matters most to us is the proclamation of Christ. Now, we, I want to make sure that this, we don't come from this. It is a wrong conclusion from this text to say that motives in ministry don't matter at all. That is a wrong conclusion to bring from this text. There are other passages of Scripture that talk about the, the, the importance of our motives in ministry and the importance of what we do. They are there. Okay? So don't take a logical conclusion here from this passage to a, to a dreadful end. But the aim of this text is this, that the gospel and the proclamation of Christ matter so much for Paul that the personal malicious attacks of other Christians against him don't matter because Christ is proclaimed. You know, maybe there is more selfish ambition in us than we care to admit. And maybe we care more about what others think of us or how others treat us or our egos than we care to admit. Well, the day-to-day ramifications of this kind of perspective are enormous for God's church. Enormous. Look at verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Friends, remember, this is a man who has been in prison, who has been brought back and forth to have an audience with different key figures. He's in prison. And yet he is writing about joy. So here's a question for us as we conclude. What is your joy connected to? Now, I've presented you a question on what matters most to you in life. And I know that makes us all squirm. There's good things in life that matter to us. Friends and family, right? Those are good things. God-given things. But here's another way to ask it. What is your joy connected to? Too often, our joy is connected to our physical conditions or our, to the responses and treatments of other people around us. But if your joy is connected to the advancement of the gospel, it means that your joy remains even when circumstances work against you because our circumstances lie under God's sovereign will and he is using our circumstances always to accomplish his purposes and plans, even when it seems like it's not going to come out that way. This passage reminds us that the only enduring joys are the God-centered joys of the gospel. Now, here we are in Advent season, right? We sing songs of joy to the world. The Lord has come. Not the sale has come on the item that you want to purchase. Or, and I, I, I know I'm being silly here, but our world is attaching joy to all sorts of things and normally it's the possession and, acquire, and, and the, 
the accumulation of things that, that our world looks at as wealth. Friends, we will only find joy like Paul had if we share Paul's perspective about what matters most in life. Philippians 1, 12-18 invites us to share in the unquenchable joy that Paul experienced. The joy of knowing the gospel advances in Christ is proclaimed. So remember, I asked us, what matters most to us in life? Well, where does the advance of the gospel appear in your mind and in your heart as you consider the priorities of your life? And by the way, this is important. This touches on the very reason that we exist as a church. I mean, our mission statement reads this way. We exist to display God's glory by making disciples through the gospel of grace. I mean, this is another way of saying what Paul says here in Philippians 1. The gospel matters most. The advance of the gospel matters most. The proclamation of Christ matters most. And how do, does our, do our lives order themselves around that aim? So here's my invitation to us. Would you pray about these matters this week? Maybe you can attend prayer meeting this Wednesday, 7 o'clock. Would you pray for our own hearts to glow with a greater warmth for the advance of the gospel and the proclamation of Christ? Would you pray for the outreach events that we have, these engagement events that we have as a church family, the It's a Wrap event that we have here, that we would be able to engage in our community. Why? For the advance of the gospel, for the proclamation of Christ. Would you continue to pray that God would use the notes, the the letters that we wrote in the Meals for Wheels um, uh, effort of engagement, that God would use those notes to advance the gospel, to proclaim Christ? Would you pray for the advance of the gospel in our cities, in our neighborhoods, in our communities? How about in our families and in our children, in our children's ministries here with Highlands Baptist Church? And also, would you pray about this? Would you pray that we would have faith to believe that God is sovereign over all of our circumstances? And that we would trust him to advance the gospel even through our times of weakness and affliction and distress. Friends, there's nothing greater to attach our joy to than what Paul attached his joy to. That Christ is proclaimed and the gospel is advanced.